Hello. This is required viewing. Oh my god, dude. I have to make a formal apology. <laughs> A public formal apology. I know. I right? was really awkward at the grocery store in front of Josh Blue. If you don't and know, and in front of me, thank you very much. I mean, it's because of you. I was awkward. Um, don't try to put the blame on me. Hundred percent putting the blame on no, you. No, no blame on uh, me. We were at a grocery store, just you know, picking up butter, doing the grocery store thing that you do. I look over and fuck. There's Josh Blue, the comedian from Last Comic Standing, because he's from Denver. He's a hometown boy. And then I turned to Chloe and I was like, damn, that's Josh Blue. I was trying to be real quiet and chill about it. And she was like, who, what? And I was like, Josh Blue. And I talked a little louder and it was just loud enough for him to hear me. Fucking and there was a very whisper. weird like eye contact thing that happened. And then I immediately turned around and just looked at the dairy. He literally, I was like, dude, let him live his life. But he was. Like, I wasn't going to go had, talk to him. But he had a look like, is this girl going to murder me? Mm, well, yeah. He's a comedian. Random people come up to him all the time. You can't just like assume everyone's going to murder you. But I also was respectful enough to realize that he was, you know, grocery shopping with his family at the time. And that's probably yeah, not inappropriate. But sorry for making you feel awkward at the grocery store, Josh Blue. <laughs> I apologize. If he listens, I'm sure he'll greatly appreciate the... If we see you at the grocery store again, I'll be less awkward. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> Possibly not sure it's 50-50 who knows girl who knows all right man let's get into it what if i don't want to no i'm just kidding too late <laughs> welcome back to the require viewing podcast i'm aaron i'm chloe and dude we're almost done with season two what episode is this 17 17, 17. we're gonna be at our merry movie miss end of year extravaganza before we know it dude i can't wait yeah, there's we're going to really get all the holiday classics that are also required viewing. Um, Some holiday classics. We also pick. They, I don't want to Some spoil that anything. we consider we're to be. All holiday. these presents to be unwrapped later. Okay. Like I that? like that. Ooh, yeah, I like that. I see what you did there. This year or this year. Shit. Fuck. It is this, this year. week. Oh, this week we pick some childhood favorites. All of these movies were well, well. Two of the three were well-watched by me when I was younger. All three were well-watched by me. Yeah. I did see the the th- other one, but just I didn't watch it as much as the other two. In passing, you yes, were like, whatever. Sure. It was nice to take a trip down, you know, childhood memory lane. Um, a couple of these movies, one of these movies really played a lot different as an adult. Oh, my God. Than it did as a child. And I don't. We're going to get into it. We're going to get into it. So the movies we watched this week, we started off with Gulliver's Travels from 1939, The Brave Little Toaster from 1987, and finally you... Hans Christian Andersen's Thumbelina from 1994. You? And for the most part, these movies are not Disney. I tried to pick all non-Disney so we can wait and get into but our big get into it Disney in the deep dive, but I'll explain myself a little later on. So... Up first, Gulliver's Travels. On November 5th, 1699, Lemuel Gulliver washes onto a beach of Lilliput after his ship is wrecked in a storm. 
The town crier Gabby stumbles across an unconscious Gulliver during his rounds and rushes back to Lilliput to warn everyone about the quote-unquote giant on the beach. Meanwhile, King Little of Lilliput and King Bombo of Belfishu. <laughs> Wait, let me say that again. I don't know how to say it. I'm trying to say this like every time I say it, I say ba, it differently. Be- no, I feel like it's Belfishu. Nope, that seems right to me. I'm going to double down. That's what I'm going to say. That's what I'm doing. All right. Um, both kings are signing a wedding contract between their children. Nothing like a good old arranged marriage. Mm-hmm. Princess Glory of Lilliput and Prince David of Belfishu, respectively. An argument then starts between the two kings as to which national anthem is going to be played at the wedding. Either Faithful from Lilliput or Forever from Belfishu. <laughs> This then I didn't I didn't write this. I or smash a bolt, smash the two together, and you yeah. got boom. Wait, wait, wait! Don't don't ruin the surprise, dude. Spoilers. Oh, I was just honestly just even in you talking, I was like the solution is obvious. And I know it's pretty fucking transparent. <laughs> they weren't digging deep here. In a fury, King Bombo cancels the wedding and declares war against Lilliput. He seems to consider changing his mind, but then Gabby rushes in, and the guards pursuing Gabby accidentally grab Bombo, who then takes insult and storms off. Gabby tells King Little of the giant and leads the mob to the beach to capture him. There, the Lilliputians tie Gulliver to a wagon and drag his ass all the way over town. Next morning, <laughs> Gulliver awakens and breaks himself free in a not-so-spectacular show of pulling these tiny little strings off his body. Yeah. He's um, like, who threw some rope on me? I know. <laughs> they, they worked really hard, and he just got the fuck up. It was real sad. <laughs> the Belafusians' fleet arrive at Lilliput and start firing upon the castle. Seeing Gulliver laughing at him, Bombo panics and orders a hasty retreat. King Bombo is embarrassed by the defeat and orders his three spies in Lilliput, Sneak, Snoop, and Snitch, to get rid of the giant or else. Meanwhile, the Lilliputians treat Gulliver to a dinner and a show. <laughs> Thanks for not stepping on us. Here's some food. <laughs> I mean, I guess that's a good... Sorry, we tied you up. I know. Here's Apologies. Food and entertainment. <laughs> When the Lilliputians fall asleep after the show, Gulliver walks into the shore, unaware that his pistol has been taken, and reminisces, and reminisces about sailing. The next day, after some horseplay with Gabby, Gulliver notices a building is on fire and puts it out, not realizing that he just saved the lives of the three spies who wished to kill him. Later that night, Prince David sneaks back into Lilliput to visit Princess Glory. Gabby overhears the prince singing his reprise of forever and mistaking him for a spy orders the guards to attack the prince. Noticing this, Gulliver picks up David and Glory in his hands and then they tell him of the war's cause. Gulliver suggests that they combine faithful and forever into one song. (laughs) See, I done told you. I know, it's very obvious. Back to King Bombo, who receives a message from his spies spies assuring him that Gulliver will be dead as a duck whenever he gives the word. Mm -hmm. And when he announces by carrier pigeon that he will attack at dawn, 
Gabby intercepts this message and warns the Lilliputians. Because of this, the spies aren't aware of the order until they capture Gabby just as the Lilliputians are marching into the beach. They hastily prepare Gulliver's pistol as the Belafucians' fleet approaches, approaches Lilliput. Gulliver demands that they lay down their arms and settle matters peacefully. When they continue shooting, he ties the Belafucian ships together using their anchors and draws them to shore, saving any men who fall aboard in the process to show he means no ill will. The spies aim fire at Gulliver from a cliff, but Prince David diverts a shot and while doing so, falls to his apparent death. Oh, you, shit. I know. It's getting dramatic. Using David's body to illustrate his point, Gulliver scolds both Lilliput and Bellafouche for their senseless fighting. While they solemnize a truce, Gulliver reveals that David is unharmed, whereupon David and Glory sing their combined song for everyone to hear. Both sides, therefore, build a new ship for Gulliver, and he sails off into the sunset. The end. Happily Dinner, ever a after. A movie and a trip home. Yeah. Well, All right. if you know anything about Gulliver's travels, well, I'm actually going to get into it in just a moment. So why He doesn't we get to go home. Shit? Why should we give a 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 shit? So this was based on a novel by Jonathan Swift, 1726 is when that novel came out, of okay. the same name. Okay. It's a four-part part story. So this is the first of four parts. And anytime there's ever been a film adaptation of this movie, it's always just been the first part. <laughs> so <laughs> No one ever gets to the No other. one gets to the rest of Gulliver's travels, but he, you just said that he went home. He does not go home. He does not get to go home. He sails off into to the To another whatever. adventure. Yeah. Um, this picture was released on December 22nd, 1939 by Paramount Pictures, and it was piggybacking off of Walt Disney's Snow White that also came out that same year. Mm -hmm. They saw that, oh shit, animations can make some money. Let's do it. <laughs> they had this kind of on the back burner. They had it ready to go. So they just greenlit the project and away they went. It was Biz also term. the first film for Flesher Studios. This, the people who produced this, and it was the second animated feature produced of all time. Really? Like I said, the first one was Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs by Walt, okay. Walt Disney. Okay, okay. Full length So feature. we did good. We did the first animated feature by not Disney. from Disney. Yes, correct. Because it was Paramount. Mm -hmm. um, several West Coast techniques were introduced in order to provide, to provide better animation and greater personality to the characters. Some animators adapted while others did not. Pencil tests were unheard of in New York, but were soon embraced as a tool for improving production methods. While the majority of the characters were animated through conventional animation techniques of the time, rotoscoping was used to animate Gulliver, Glory, and David. That is what I love. I'm going to let you talk about that here in just a moment. Sam Parker, the voice of Gulliver, also modeled for the live action reference. This Ooh. is where we see at this point like? in time is where the building blocks of like basic animation are starting. And then a lot of things like Roto. So a lot of the stuff then formed into CGI, which we have now. It all led together. So I'm just going to let you take it away. Tell me, because I know you did some research about the animation. Well, the majority of the characters were, like you said, were animated through conventional animation and techniques. And we'll go over that. 
we'll go over that. Uh, rotoscoping was used to animate Gulliver, Glory, and David, like you mentioned. Um, animators used to trace over motion picture footage frame by frame to produce realistic action. And originally, animators projected photographed live action images onto a glass panel and traced over the image. Hmm. Did you know these? Yeah, things? I've seen videos of that. Yes, and it all. Took I Korea love now. watching the old, like old documentaries of how they those people could fucking draw behind dude. the scenes of how they made all those old animation movies it's really fucking cool well so rotoscoping was developed by max fleischer cool. who was dope. a polish american animator and later you know it was replaced by computers but on the computer it's still referred to as rotoscoping like what you're doing that action that technique um yeah so that's all i got cool awesome Okay, we well, learned let's a little tra- bit about we rotoscoping. Travel on over. We're gonna to brave little move toaster on down the road, which is a different movie, which we'll definitely watch one of these days. The Wiz. Oh yeah, it. dude, down, we definitely have to watch The Wiz. I love The Wiz. You were really surprised I had seen that movie. Is yeah, it because I'm white? white people. No offense, but most white people are like, "What? I'm from it's Kansas." The Wizard of Oz. Bitch, You're saying I'm it seen, wrong. I've literally seen every interpretation of The Wizard of Oz. That makes I'm sense. From Kansas. Anyway, Brave Little Toaster, favorite of mine. I definitely like 1987. Mm-hmm. But favorite I remember this differently. What? I remembered this differently. Exactly. Me too. We're gonna get into that when we get into the why we should give a shit. But <laughs> right now, if you have never graced your eyes with the Brave Little Toaster, it is the story of a. Well, our story starts out in a small wooden cottage. Known as the Peaceful Woodland Cottage. Very original. <laughs> I didn't remember that either. <laughs> Where five members of a clan of small electrical appliances, a toaster, a radio, a lamp named Lampy, an electric blanket named Blanky. My favorite character ever. I know me too. And a vacuum cleaner named Kirby await the return of a young boy named Rob, who they creepily refer to as Master the whole fucking movie. Yeah. Why couldn't they just do it like in Toy Story where it was just Andy? We're going to talk about Toy Story. Okay. Get ready. Oh, okay. Uh, This home was used as a vacation home for his family, but the family has not come back in many years. One day in July, upon seeing the cottage is about to be sold, the appliances decide to venture out and find Rob themselves. It took them years to do that. (laughs) (laughs) They turn Kirby into a a lawn tractor and travel travel via him. They travel. They have have a little chair that they all get on and little vacuum just drags their asses around. That's why he's he so fucking the, grumpy all the time. Yeah, he works his ass off and these dudes just fucking sit there the whole time. Didn't Except for I radio. Say that we relate more and more, I feel like, to the vacuum cleaner. Definitely. 100%. Yeah. Hardest working bu- one of the bunch. The other, the <laughs> second hardest working is the radio who serves as navigator by directing the group towards urban radio signals he picks up. Along their journey, the appliances have numerous harrowing adventures. At one point, their battery is nearly dead, and the group stops for the night in the forest, with Blanky serving as a makeshift tent. During the night, a storm blows Blinky up in a storm blows Blanky up into the trees, and oh no. Lampy himself and Lampy uses himself as a lightning rod to recharge the battery. After recovering Blanky, the appliances try to cross a waterfall, 
but everyone except Kirby falls into the water below. Kirby dives in and rescues the others, but with the chair, strip, and battery lost, the group results the group resorts to pulling the disabled Kirby through a swamp. Great idea. Ugh. Great idea. Why? <laughs> that was sarcasm. Oh. They're almost swallowed up by quicksand, but are saved by a man named Elmo St. Peter's. I didn't. I never noticed his name ever. Mm-mm. So well, because I was too thing. traumatized at this point. Yep. Uh, he's taken the appliances back to his appliance store where they witness him dismantling a blender to sell a motor to a customer. When radio is about to be taken apart for radio tubes, the others frighten St. Peter's by pretending to be a ghost. With St. Peter's unconscious, the group escapes and makes their way to the city. Rob, now a young adult, goes out to the cottage with his girlfriend, Chris, to After all this shit, they should have just waited at fucking home. Just missed him. Rob goes with his girlfriend, Chris, to the cottage to go Who pick up the appliances. Who is also a great B word, by the way. What? She's such a B word, by the way. She's a real bitch. Well, I mean. She's just like, oh my God, let's get young this over love, with. Man. He'll learn his lesson. He's <laughs> trying to get the appliances so he can take them off to college with him. He's going to choose that toaster over that girlfriend. Just watch. 100%. He has a way deeper connection with the toaster. I hope he doesn't, you know. When the group arrives at Rob's family apartment, their newer appliances, resentful about Rob wanting to take the older appliances instead of them, demonstrate how much more technologically advanced they are, and they throw the group out of the apartment into a dumpster. In 80s song fashion. I know, the songs in this are fucking dope. Rob and Chris return home empty-handed, but an old black and white television in the apartment a friend of all five of the appliances who formerly resided in the cottage with them plays a fictional advertisement for a junkyard that the plays a fictional advertisement for the junkyard that the appliances have been taken to in the hopes that Rob and Chris will go rescue them at the junkyard. The appliances are despondent that Rob apparently no longer loves them or needs them. Pick it. (laughs) Shit. They are picked up by a, a large electromagnet and are about to be destroyed by a crusher. But when they see Rob in the junkyard, they believe that he still might need them after all. They make numerous attempts to escape the magnet and place themselves so Rob will find them until the magnet picks up a huge pile of junk and spreads it along the conveyor belt, leading to the crusher, separating the group. Rob spots all of the appliances except for the toaster on the conveyor belt but the magnet picks up rob as well as the appliances and drops them back on the belt toaster then jumps into the crusher's gears and jams them stopping the crusher just before it flattens rob and the others in a harrowing saving rescue jeff it's a toaster it's a, fucking it's toaster. a brave little toaster it is okay a brave little toaster back of the apartment because we just moving right along in this I fucking guess. story. Where this is for children, we got ninety minutes max. We've already the, been through so much at this point. No, we didn't. I didn't even talk about. I'll let you talk about the nightmare fuel. Fucking, we can both talk about it. I know. We, we'll talk about that in a minute. Yeah. So back at the apartment, Rob repairs the mangled toaster, and he and Chris depart. And he and Chris soon depart for college with all five appliances in tow, happily ever after, until they all burst into flame because their appliance from the oh my God. 
<laughs> they're not gonna last too much longer. Anyway, but there's why? like what three fucking more movies or whatever after that? I know they there's a bunch of sequels that I've never seen. I didn't really care about seeing them. Anyway, why should we give a shit about this movie, dude? Why should we? Why should we give a shit? Okay, so I know I said at the top, no, mostly no Disney movies. This is our exception. So I'm gonna eat a little crow at the moment. I did Today's, not read the theme of this episode is you eating crow for Josh Blue and for this. I know. I'm just gonna stick my foot in my mouth. Anyway, uh, so uh, the House of Mouse seems to own fucking everything. So this was produced and distributed by Buena Vista Productions, which mm-hmm. used to do a lot of animation in they the 60s, did. 70s, and 80s. Buena Vista Productions is a subsidiary of Walt Disney, which I did oh. not know initially. So I'm sorry. We were like, we found one. Yeah, I was really excited that this wasn't a Disney movie. And then it kind of ended up being sort of a Disney movie. So the film rights to The Brave Little Toaster are originally, uh, it's originally a novella by Thomas M. Dish. And they were purchased by Walt Disney Studios in 1982, two years after its appearance in the magazine of fantasy and science fiction. After animators John Lester and Glenn Keane finished a short 2D, 3D test based on the film, or sorry, based on the book, Where the Wild Things Are, Lester and producer, producer Thomas L. White decided that they wanted to produce a whole feature um, of the Brave Little Toaster using the same technique. So the Brave Little Toaster is the first CGI film that Lasseter ever pitched. Um, it wasn't really referred to as CGI yet. Not really. Um, their enthusiasm for the picture ran into some issues pitching the idea to two high-level Disney execs, animation administrator Ed Hansen and Disney president Ron W. Miller. Miller asked about the cost after the pitch, And when Lasseter replied that it would cost no more than a traditionally animated film, Miller rejected the pitch, saying that the only reason to use computers would be if it was going to be faster and cheaper. So then the budget was cut from $12 million to $5 million. To in, they, that was there was the that was the compromise. We'll allow you to Slash use CGI, but we're essentially going to cut your budget in half. So that's what it was. Is that the where the wild things are was a a short like Correct. you know how Pixar does all those shorts. Correct. And so they wanted to use that in like a full length Correct. film. Correct. So that's how they got the project greenlit. Um, so they was, had like basically they had like a little trailer of what it could be. Yeah, but and they then, wanted to have twelve million, not five million, to put into production. Despite having funds reduced, um, Disney wasn't really involved in this production. That's why I said it's kind of a pseudo Disney production, but not really because they just kind of gave the money, but they had no really nothing else involved. Mm-hmm. So, Rees later commented that there were external forces at work, and they had the right to say. This was a cheap film, so they could ship it overseas, Hmm. which the staff objected to and therefore were willing to make sacrifices to improve the quality of the film despite its limited budget. So because they Disney, the big mouse, decided to cut their budget and make it like an overseas like moneymaker mm-hmm. and not really produce it here in the states oh, it was kind it didn't of insulting get as much attention they it was kind of insulting to the animators and so they worked 
I bet they did a lot of overtime and a lot you know of stuff funny? under the table to get this off the ground because they were passionate about the story and passionate about getting it out well, and having it be good quality. Well, you know what's funny is that they were pissed about it going overseas when now all the, a lot of the animation was done in Korea and then came overseas to America. Mm-hmm. It's just interesting I know. To me. It's fascinating, right? Do you think they're pissed? Do you what? think they're like, man, we want something else in this? In, you know, we want to watch speed in vietnam who knows (laughs) distribution is such a interesting fascinating fickle fucking thing Um, we've been learning that recently and you meant what we've been learning that recently i know right so we talked a little about the talent that was involved in this movie many of the cast and crew went on to become stables in hollywood's Co-writer John Ranfit became script supervisor at Pixar. Animators Glenn Keeney, Kirk Wise, and Kevin Lima went on to animate and co-direct films um, as part of what they call the Disney Renaissance, which is that big uptick for long. People don't know this, but Disney was taking a nosedive financially in the late 70s through most of the 80s. And it wasn't until 89 when we have The Little Mermaid, Beauty and the Beast, Aladdin, Pocahontas, Hunchback of Notre Dame, Tarzan, all these movies. That's the Renaissance. These guys were like integral into bringing Disney back up to the height of where it's at right now. Keen would also go on to produce the 2010 animated film Tangled. Effects animator Mark Dindle directed Disney's Emperor Emperor's New Groove and Chicken Little. Hell yeah, dude. I love the Emperor's New Groove. Confession. I've never seen that one. It's so good. We're I mean to it's, watch it. it's led by David Spade. Yeah, I know who's in it. I've just never seen it yeah. it's in, in its entirety. Um he also directed Warner Brothers Cats Don't Dance, which I somehow missed that one. <laughs> Character designer Rob Minkoff directed The Lion King, Stuart Little 1 and 2, and Mr. Peabody and Sherman. After, oh, yeah. I, I love that. I love Mr. Peabody and Sherman. After directing a fi- financially unsuccessful film, The Marrying Man, in 1991, Jerry Reese went on to direct Disney p- theme park films. Many have noted that this film shares stark similarities to the Toy Story franchise, also worked on by John Lasseter. So this this particular movie directly influenced, if it wasn't for the Brave Little Toaster, we would not have Toy Story and its franchise. So you know what's interesting? You said that Disney took a nosedive like in the 70s. And you want to know, my theory is that's when... Stop motion became popular again between the seven, like the late sixties, the seventies, and then the eighties. Because in the eighties too, what was it? It was um, Sledgehammer by Peter Gabriel. That was like one of the first, I think, music videos to use it, and everybody was getting back into it. And then Gumby too. Fucking Gumby, man! I, I love, love Gumby, Gumby, man. That's why I used to go to Fuddruckers. Have you ever been to Fuddruckers? I mean, technically, so technically stop motion was invented in like 1897, but then they used it in a bunch of stuff in like 1908. But, you know, claymation kind of came around, but it was, you know, basically taking photographs. But in animation styling, they would take those photographs and instead of, you know, doing that, they would trace over the top of them. We're going to get into claymation next week. I can't freaking wait. So 
Don't go don't go too far that rabble hole that's yet. That's it. We're that's all I was going to share okay. was all just right. that like that's wanna, that's my theory as to why I think that's my theory cuz Disney didn't really do a lot of stop motion they stuff. They were doing more uh live action. Yeah. And we're going to get into that cuz that's like Kurt Russell's young career was a lot of Disney and we here at RVP love Kurt Russell. We do. Shout out to Kurt Russell. <laughs> Always. Yeah. Well, okay, so this fucking movie did not Okay. I don't even know how to describe it. So there were scenes in this movie that I just, maybe I blocked out from childhood trauma. I don't know. I genuinely don't remember. There's a nightmare scene. Is All of it is, nightmare, let's say right? the entire thing, it's a feature length nightmare fuel film. <laughs> what? <laughs> Brave Little Toaster, the whole thing? Yeah. Oh, well, I'm just talking about the one nightmare section with all the clowns and the fire. I and blocked out murder. the clowns. I did not. You and I did not remember. It was a lot more intense and adult than I ever remember that movie being. Also, too, a lot more fucking depressing. Yeah, it was Like, they sad. were like, we're just going to wait here for Master for years and years and years. Yeah, dude, we were so excited to watch that movie. And then we started watching it and we're like, damn, this is real sad. Jesus. Yeah. Oh, my God. Why I we, mean, it kind of ends on a happy this? note, but they go through some shit, they dude. They do. Yeah, this movie's insane. I'm glad we rewatched it, though. Me I'm too. glad as adults, I highly encourage you to go watch this one. It's it definitely different. Get that stamp out. Pow, pow. Ping. <laughs> Require viewing. Right on. Shit. <clears throat> okay, we're on our last one. Thumbelina. Let's travel along like they did, but less traumatic into our next film. <laughs> this movie's about uh, human trafficking. <laughs> oh my god! Basically, dude, that's what we realized. This whole episode is us just coming into like our dramas and like re- reliving I, yeah. those nostalgic moments. Where were my parents when I was watching these movies? But I love this oh next movie. Anyway, so this movie, if you've never seen Thumbelina, uh, starts. It's a Hans Christian Andersen fairy tale, like I mentioned yes, earlier. But this movie came out in 1994. 94. This movie starts off with a lonely widow longing for a child of her own, and she's given a barley seed by a friendly witch. The planted seed then grows into a flower, and a tiny girl emerges from inside, no bigger than the old woman's thumb. The old woman then names the tiny girl Thumbelina. What if she can't, like, Put her in a different body part. You'd be like elbow, elbow Lena. Titty Lena. Oh my God. Nipple, areola Lena. <laughs> she was trying to breastfeed her or some shit. Jesus I don't Christ. know. She was never so, really a baby. I guess she came out as like a fully formed No, she formed literally young came adult. out as like a teenage girl yeah. out of this flower. She was of like, course. Nope, so nope, the first thing you get done. to deal with is a horny teenager. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so the old woman raises Thumbelina as her own. Although Thumbelina loves her mother, she craves companionship from someone her own size. A.K.A. she horny, yo. She is. She is. Teenager. Hormones. Mm-hmm. One night, the fairy prince Cornelius stumbles upon Thumbelina after hearing her sing. The two then ride on Cornelius's bumblebee and fall madly in love. Real fast. I mean, it's like, let's get married about 30 seconds in. During this ride, Mrs. Toad and her son Grundle are enchanted by Thumbelina's... I know, that's a gross name. (laughs) They're enchanted by Thumbelina's singing. That night, Mrs. Toad kidnaps Thumbelina. I just want to mention that Mrs. Toad is played by fucking Charo. Charo? Charo. I remembered that fact. It's great. It's awesome. Anyway. That's when you're talking about how many contracted coochie coochies do you think she had? (laughs) Coochie coochie coochie. 
coochie coochie. There, there were not nearly as coochie, many coochie coochies as there probably could have been. In this. They were she stealing, probably wanted more. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so first kidnap of the movie. She's kidnapped <laughs> by Mrs. Toad. And she wants her to join their singing troupe and marry her son, Grundle. Thumbelina is rescued by Giacomo. This story is set in France, and there's only one person with, like, a super French name. (laughs) That's Or a character. I'm not going to say person, because Giacomo is a sparrow. He's the only one that talks in a French accent. Only one has a French name. He's the only one to really place this in France at this point. Meanwhile, Cornelius learns of her kidnapping and returns to his kingdom, the Vale of the Fairies. Okay. To ask his parents to try holding back winter as long as they can, but they can only hold it for a day. Grundle learns that Thumbelina escaped and ventures out to find her. While trying to get home, Thumbelina is ambushed by Barkley Beetle who promises to show her the way home if she sings at his beetle ball. She reluctantly complies, but her bug disguise falls off during the concert, and she's denounced and called ugly and pointed at and laughed at, and they're really fucking mean to her. Dude, and especially as she's in that volatile place. She's been kidnapped twice now. I guess vulnerable, but also volatile. She doesn't realize she's been kidnapped, but she's essentially been kidnapped the second time. Like a couple times, times. yes, second time. After her humiliation in front of the audience, the beetle rejects her without helping her, and she's found again by Giacomo, who promises to find Cornelius. Beetle is confronted by Grundle and suggests that Grundle kidnap Cornelius and use, use him as bait to lure Thumbelina back. Grundle coerces Beetle into a partnership by removing his wings. He rips off his wings. He's like, you're going to work with me now, dude. Upon arrival of winter, Giacomo injures his wing and loses consciousness from the extreme cold. Yeah, this bitch is gone for a long time. I know. This is a whole journey. Like whole seasons go by as she is gone. Absolutely. You don't hear a thing from her mother. Cornelius is blown into a pond by the wind and is frozen. Beetle then finds Cornelius's frozen body and takes him to Grundle. Thumbelina is forced to take refuge in an old shoe where she's discovered by Mrs. Fieldmouse, played by Carol Channing. Oh, I love Carol Channing. <laughs> she's the best. There's some really good ones in here. <laughs> um, and she's granted shelter in her underground house. After relaying Cornelius's fate to her, Mrs. Fieldmouse introduces her to her neighbor, Mr. Mole who becomes infatuated with her and desires to marry her. Like it's everybody. Really gross. It's like, get in Again, line, dude. We are now trafficking this poor girl for the third time. Third time. Both times lured in by women, you know. I know. It's really bizarre. That is a very bizarre and astute observation I didn't put together. Neither. Yeah. That is fascinating. Right? Hmm. It's like some is, SBU shit going like, on. We're getting real deep into this now. Fuck. Devastated by the apparent loss of Cornelius, Thumbelina gives in to hopelessness and accepts Mr. Mole's proposal. Giacomo revives, and before Thumbelina can get a chance to explain to him what happened, he promises to go find Cornelius and do this, resolve this whole thing, before the wedding. Beetle tells Grundle of Thumbelina's wedding. When they leave Cornelius behind, a trio of friendly insect children find and thaw out Cornelius. At the wedding, Thumbelina finds herself unable to marry Mr. Mole after remembering Cornelius's promise to always love her. 
Grundle and Beetle arrive. Grundle and Grundle and Beetle arrive, and a chase ensues. Grundle and Beetle arrive, and a chase ensues. Cornelius also arrives and engages Grundle in a fight, which culminates with the two falling into a chasm. Thumbelina escapes on a pile of Mr. Mole's treasure, causing it to fall onto Mr. Mole and the wedding guests below. Giacomo finds the Vale of Fairies and takes Thumbelina there. She and Cornelius reunite, and she magically grows a pair of wings upon accepting his marriage proposal, and they make out. Because <laughs> now she's a fucking fairy. But she's finally she's finally getting a chance to like act out. Do on it, her. yeah. She's so this has been this girl has been tossed around from man to man to man this whole movie. She finally gets to get laid by the one she wants. With her mother and the fairy court in attendance, the two marry and depart on Cornelius's bee. In the end credits, we have images that reveal that the beetle's wings regrew, and he resumed his pop career. Grundle survived the fall with a broken leg and married a female toad to his mom's delight. And Mr. Mole married Mrs. Fieldhouse, and everyone lived happily ever after. That hits different, too. I know. She lured him in and was like, okay, here you go. I know. Dude, why should we give a shit about this movie? I know what? exactly why should we fucking give a shit well, about this movie. Well, first of all, it does not start... and It starts with Barry Manilow. I was about to say Barry Manilow <laughs> is why we should fucking give a shit about this fucking movie. So Barry Manilow, for you young whippersnappers, go look this motherfucker up. He's a panty-dropping OG from the 70s. He's Barry, still dropping panties, man. Yeah, I mean, the old ladies are still... Dropping them panties. He doesn't want the same panties anymore. They've evolved. They've gotten bigger. I brought these back. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, Barry Manilow agreed to to compose three songs for Don Bluth Pictures. Don Bluth is the guy who directed this. Thumbelina was the first, followed by The Pebble and the Penguin, which I also love that movie. I don't think I... And then... It's been forever since I've seen it. I know. It's been a hot minute. The third movie was a retelling of the story Rapunzel, in which Manila would also have had a voice role, but it was canceled. The film's soundtrack was released for a limited time, but has since gone out of print. So if you wanted this, you can't find it on Spotify. Mary the Mole won a Razzie for worst original original song of the year. Really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and this wa- this poor film has a whopping thirty eight percent on Rocket Rotten Tomatoes. I don't which believe. I, that. I think that's a little fucking harsh. Maybe it's a generational thing. Maybe we just really like have you know some serious what? nostalgia. But Dude, it's like a, a hashtag Me Too thing. You think it would pick up on that movement? You know. I I guess a children's story about human trafficking isn't. As popular as it should be. <laughs> Apparently, it was to us. <laughs> we fucking loved it. So yeah, what else? You wait. What you got to lay down on this movie? What do you think about this movie? How this movie lay for you? I really want to just address the elephant in the room, or rather, the grundle in the room. Um. Also, we were talking about those toads. They were given mad homeschool energy, like yeah. mad homeschool kid energy. Oh yeah. Big time, big time. Those like kids they were no way too trusting and quick to marry. Yep. Granted, their mom was pushing them, which is never a great idea. But originally in the UK, it's a kind of fish or the or the groundling. So it would make sense that he's a toad, you know. But it also means like a big bunch or like a lot. So like for a grundle of ideas. But in colloquial terms... 
You might note it as the space of epidermis constituting the area betwixt the anal opening and the scrotum of a male. Whoa. Although a female Whoa. also has a significantly smaller area. Are you telling me a grundle is a taint? It's a gooch. That's why when you were saying I was fucking cringing over here. Oh my God. Yeah, dude. That dude is a literal taint. I believe that. <laughs> okay. You oh can call God. me Grundle, also known as Los Gooch. Oh my God. All right. Okay. Well, that explains El his Gooch. whole vibe. That makes all the sense in the world. Ooh, what if she's not saying Coochie Coochie Coo? She's saying Gucci Gucci Goo. Right? Yeah. So anyway, I had to just address that because that was just bothering me. I'm glad you learned something today. (laughs) I'm feeling feeling real taken advantage of by these movies. Oh, my God. (laughs) So the animation style for this one was so much more traumatic than I remember. Uh, Yeah. It hits different. That's all we have to say. It does. So the animation style for this one, there wasn't really like a ton of information. Like the other one was like this dude invented this style of animation for Gulliver's Travels. But so this one was done with using like, I'm assuming traditional animation techniques because it was the 90s. But um, so traditionally they're drawn by hand, you know, frame by frame. And they often use maquettes or 3D references for poses and things like that. Um, they also use turnarounds shown, they show how the character or the object, whatever it is, looks in three dimensions along with standardized special poses and expressions. So kind of, again, like clay, stop motion, claymation kind of thing. Of course, I'm real, of course, thinking of like uh, Wallace and Gromit. Yeah. I love that one. Oh, yeah, definitely. So, yeah, so that was like the original animation was really in 1908. But the OG was invented, like, Earl Hurd and John Bray, I think. It was cell animations. And that was what, you know, the last one was. And mm-hmm. that was in 1915. Mm-hmm. And then that movie came out in 39. Yeah. So after that, moving right along. So there's a bunch of other kinds of animation. I'm just going to run through them. I'm not going to give you, like, you can go do your own research. It'll encourage you to do your own, you know, find your own facts. We encourage some homework on this podcast. Yeah. It's educational. It's edutainment. Um, so anyway, so after like cell animation, there's cell overlay, which is you take an inanimate object used to give the impression of foreground when laid on top of a ready frame. It's the illusion of depth. So there's also pre-cell, which is a single sheet of paper that's redrawn each frame. That sounds very frustrating. I mean, it's people had more patience. We've talked about this. People had way more patience back oh, in the yeah. day. So then there's limited animation, shooting on twos, animation loops, multiplane process, um, xerography, which sounds really cool, APT po- AP- the APT process, live action hybrids, and then, you know, so on and so forth until we get to computers and digital cameras. Because yeah. then, you know, Thumbelina was 1994, but in 1995, Pixar released Toy Story. Correct. So it's all related, man. I saw that in the theaters in 1995. My parents took me to see that. Me too. My parents took me all those that I basically saw every one of those Disney Renaissance movies. My mom the always took me to a Disney Aladdin. movie in theaters and she would always fall asleep. And I'd be like, mom, oh my God, look. And she'd be like, yeah, oh my God. And then like fall back asleep for what she'd call a cat nap. 
Yeah, we're resting. My parents did that too. Yeah, it was a chance to get air conditioned, an air conditioned nap. Yeah, my dad took me to see Harriet the Spy. He snored through that whole fucking movie. Really? Yeah, like loudly. Yeah, like people knew it was coming from your general area. Yeah, that's fucked. He didn't like it very much. <laughs> I don't hold any hostility yeah, man. towards Dude, it. Dude, I miss the 90s Disney store. That's what I miss. I oh still my God. have. So like. I'll have to take I'll, you to Disneyland, like the LA ones. The or, one. So that you can see. There's like downtown Disney and there's a yeah. Disney store in there. That sounds really cool. So they can Let's filter right into it. They don't have to ship anything really. Let's do that. Kind of, maybe. that. Well, that wraps it up on this week's movies. For like, animation. A nice little, little walk down memory lane. <laughs> Also, too, we've weird. talked about it. We'll do more animation, animated features. Um, actually, we have one coming up next week that oh we God. couldn't fit into this one. So I found a place to put it next week. <laughs> Girl, what are we watching next week? What are we watching? Yes. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> First, we're watching. So it's for fantasy. So we're watching Jason and the Argonauts from 1963. Then we go right into yours, and I, again, nostalgic favorite, Time Bandits from 1981. The 80s were just great for fantasy flicks. That's what we were talking about. And then, of course, we close it out with the animated feature film Fern Gully from 1992. So good. Climate change. Ooh. I'm going to get, and I've watched Fern Gully so many times. So many I've times. I've done a number of deep dives on Dude, my we'll personal time, so I'm really week. excited to get in and talk about all three of these movies next week. Thanks again for tuning in. Don't forget to follow us on all of our socials. Um, We have some big news that hopefully within the next couple of weeks, I really hope that we can announce. We've been working really hard on some of the things that we've been promising you. We've been promising merch for a long time and it's finally on its way. Might have our merch store up and running here really soon. So keep and have street team sign up availability and a bunch of fucking stuff coming out so keep an ear out keep an eye out follow us and we'll let you know when all that stuff is live um so yeah until next week everybody happy well, Aaron, viewing can they follow us i was hoping they i wouldn't have to say that every fucking time <laughs> you should be able to know that by now well, what if they li- what if they do what you do and they listen to the most recent episode i know all they right. would have no idea okay all right well you better fucking follow us oh my god follow us at the required viewing podcast on all our social platforms uh, follow me at Aaron Melane official on all social media and yeah chloe follow riggs chloe makes at chloe riggs makes th- makes things i don't make on- the things i just make things she makes stuff <laughs> things on instagram and other so places. yeah everybody thanks Till thanks next for week. making it this far we're almost through season two oh it's crazy ooh. all right all right happy viewing hello this is required viewing This podcast was a Yaki Soba Studios production with a special thanks to our producer, Michael Murray, with graphics and music done by Colin Pearson.